Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This is the final Sunday of the Advent season. Advent includes the four Sundays before Christmas. Advent is a term that means arrival. In the Christian calendar, Advent is a time when we look back and celebrate the first arrival of our Lord in a manger in Bethlehem, and yet we anticipate His future Advent or His future arrival. When we think of Advent scriptures, normally we think of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, the uh, birth narratives. And certainly uh, the the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke are incomparable. They're unparalleled. But what we uh, don't often see, or maybe don't often enough see, is that some of the best Christmas passages and the best Advent passages are written by prophets anywhere from 500 to 700 years before Jesus was even born. And that is the case in the Advent Scriptures that I've chosen uh, to preach from during these Sundays of Advent. Isaiah chapter 40 was written to give hope to some people who were devastated. Uh, The Babylonians had come into Jerusalem. They had laid siege on Jerusalem two years, starved the people out. Then they went into Jerusalem and destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, destroyed the people's way of life. Everywhere they looked, there was hopelessness, and they were desperate for uh, the intervention of God. The people to whom Isaiah was writing were discouraged They were depressed, they were despondent, they were defeated, and they were desperate for some glimmer of hope. For 39 chapters, he's given them nothing but judgment. But now, beginning with chapter 40 and going through chapter 66, he gives them nothing but hope, what they are in desperate need of. I want you to look with me to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may the words of our mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Lord, I realize that we've just read your word and nothing that I will say will come close to what I just read because what I read is your word. But I pray that these words of an ancient prophet 25, 2600 years ago will speak to our hearts in a modern, relevant way because they are relevant for us. They are good for us because like Isaiah, we long for the coming of our Lord. And so speak to us, we pray through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. You cannot read the book of Isaiah without sensing how much Isaiah longed for the intervention of God in his world. In fact, uh, more than any other prophet, Isaiah foresaw the coming of the Messiah. Many of the prophets saw the the coming of the Messiah. Malachi foresaw the coming, and he said there'd be a, a messenger who would go before the coming of the Lord. Micah foresaw the coming of the Lord, and he said that that Messiah would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. But nobody foresaw with the clarity and with the frequency that the prophet Isaiah foresaw the coming of the Lord. It seems at every turn, Isaiah is is looking into the future and he is longing desperately for God to intervene, for the Messiah to come. And God inspired him in such a way that he spoke clearly, almost as if he were there when the Lord was born and lived. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14 Isaiah predicted the coming of the birth, the birth of the Lord. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a word that means God with us. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine predicted the birth of a son who would be called God, who would lead a kingdom that would never end. He says in in Isaiah nine, verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 35 that when the Lord comes, he would perform miracles. Isaiah chapter 35, beginning with verse 4, he says to those with fearful hearts, I say, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance. With divine retribution, He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah, when he would come, would be preceded by a messenger who you and I know to be John the baptizer in chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah said, there's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
In Isaiah chapter 50, beginning with verse 6, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be beaten and spat upon. He says this in chapter 50, verse 6. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Perhaps there is no more clear passage of Scripture concerning the death and substitutionary atonement of Jesus than what is found in Isaiah 53. If we didn't know any better reading Isaiah 53, you'd swear that He was standing on Golgotha's hill looking at the cross, witnessing firsthand. And yet He's writing in chapter 53 some 500 to 600 years before Christ was even born or even died. In Isaiah 53, he predicted that the Messiah would be rejected, and he was. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would die for our sins, and he did. In Isaiah 53, he predicted that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers, and Jesus was. In Isaiah 53, he predicted that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and the Gospels tell us that he was. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors, and indeed, he was surrounded on Golgotha's hill by two thieves. Do you get what I'm saying? All the way through the 66 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah so clearly anticipated, longed for, and foresaw the coming of the Messiah. It's it's as if in every single passage, at every single juncture, Isaiah is crying out, I can almost see Him coming. I can almost see Him coming. Isaiah was so in touch with the people of his day. They were broken. They thought God had abandoned them, deserted them. And here is Isaiah. He spent 39 chapters telling them that the reason they are where they are is because of their own sinfulness. But now, beginning in chapter 40 and going on for 27 chapters, he's going to give them nothing but comfort and hope and promise. Because God had not given up on them. And here we are 2,500 years later, and the words that Isaiah said to his readers 2,500, 2,600 years ago are so relevant to us today. People are broken today. People are hurting today. People are struggling. Even people who on the, from the outside seem to have everything they'd ever want in life, they down deep are struggling. And we all, like Isaiah, at every corner are yearning for God's arrival. Isaiah is a wonderful book. It deals with two of the three great crises in the Old Testament. The three greatest crises, in fact, the Old Testament hinges upon three crises. The exodus in Egypt, which lasted 430 years. The uh, exile in Babylon, which lasted 70 years. And the extermination in Assyria. Those three tragedies. The the greatest of those tragedies is the Assyrian conflict because the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom of Israel, they invaded the capital of Samaria and took the nation of Israel away and they were exterminated. They never came back. The next most important and crucial and tragic event was the Exodus where the children of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. About a, a, a little over a fourth to a third of that was spent in captivity in Egypt. And then you have the Babylonian exile, which was a tragedy, but the least of the three. Isaiah deals with Assyrian 
extermination and the Babylonian exile. The first 39 chapters deal with Assyria and the last 27 chapters deal with Babylon. And in all of those, both of those major crises, what Isaiah, what Isaiah saw and what he experienced was a people who were longing for God to intervene. Oh, I can almost see him coming. I want you to listen to some things he tells us. He tells us, first of all, that our own need for relief from struggle cries out for the coming of the Lord. Our own need for relief from struggle cries out for His coming. He says in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now two things pop out in these, in these two verses to me. First of all, God still calls them His own people. They thought God had abandoned them. They thought God had deserted them. But in reality, God was still looking upon them as His own people. In their crisis, in their desperate longing for relief from their struggle, God still looked upon them as His own people. The second thing I want you to notice is that God's instructions are to provide comfort and tenderness. Now this comfort here is not lazy boy recliner comfort. It's relief from struggle. It is relief from hardship. It is, it is a, a comfort that comes to people who are in the worst kind of discomfort. Everywhere I turn as a pastor, I see people who are struggling. There are marriages that are in trouble. There are people who've lost their jobs or had their pay cut. There are people who are dealing with financial difficulties. Every week in our church, we have people who have really serious health issues. Every week in our church, there are people with depression issues. And those just scratch the surface of many of the struggles that people face. Just in our church. And that, that need... For, a, for relief from those kinds of struggles causes us to cry out for intervention from God, to cry out for His coming. Our need for relief from struggle cries out for His coming. Secondly, Isaiah tells us that the fact that our world is so messed up cries out for His coming. The fact that our world is so messed up cries out for His coming. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then he says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley raised up, every mountain and hill made low, rough ground becomes level, rugged places a smooth plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Is there any doubt among anybody here that our world is so messed up? I mean, if you, if you read the news every day, if you watch the news every day, somebody's being killed, somebody's being raped, some child's being abused, some scandal is going on, some war is raging, leaders make decisions 
that cause us to step back in shock and, and ask the question, what on earth are they thinking? Our world is so, so messed up. And it's not only messed up morally, but our world is messed up meteorologically. <laughs> this morning, I was watching some of the pictures from the, from the Philippines, the great floods that they uh, were having down there. 650 people dead so far, hundreds more missing, and the devastation was incredible. I couldn't help but think about Doris and Hugo as I looked at those photographs, and I thought, our world is so messed up. And deep down in, in the very depths of our souls, the fact that our world is so messed up causes us to cry out for God's intervention, for His coming, for His arrival, for His advent. Our world is riddled with sin, and our world is riddled with tragedy. Our world is one of low valleys and steep climbs and rough ground and rugged plains. And all of those uh, descriptive analogies sound good if you're looking at pictures in a National Geographic magazine of the majesty of creation. But when you take those same analogies and use them to apply to what's going on in our lives, then we don't like deep valleys. And we, we, we struggle with, with steep climbs. And we have a hard time navigating rough ground. And we uh, dislike having to go through rugged plains. They describe the hardships of life. They point out that something's wrong in this world. You know what the writer of Ecclesiastes says? The writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. You know what that means? It means that in the depths of, in the heart of every single person, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, in the deepest part of everybody's heart, there is a desire for eternity. There is a longing for something more. There is a longing for what is wrong to be set right. That, that there is a longing for this world, which is so messed up, to be straightened up. And the fact that our world is so messed up causes us to cry out for His coming. Number three, that human life is so brief and fragile, cries out for the coming of the Lord. Isaiah says in verse 6, All people are like grass, their faithfulness is like flowers of the field. Verse 7, the grass withers and the flowers fall. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Psalm 90, verse 4, A thousand years in your sight, O God, are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. A watch was three hours long. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered talking about the brevity and the, and the fragility of human life. The book of James, chapter 4, verse 14 in the New Testament, James says, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are but a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life is so short. I have the, I guess I should say, misfortune of speaking at about 25 funerals a year. And there are some things when we go out to the cemetery after a funeral for the graveside, there's some things that I, for some reason, I always take note of. And one of the things is I, I, I look at the age of a marker, but I also look at the length of a burial site. 
And I've noticed some things. They range anywhere from about seven and a half feet long to five feet long to two feet long. Life is so fragile. It can, it can be lost just like that. James is right. Life is like a vapor. Kelly Creel, her grandfather passed away over the weekend. He was 105 years old. What about that? Isn't that wonderful? 105 years old. And yet 105 years old is just like that, James says. And the fact that our lives are so brief and so fragile causes us to long for the Lord's coming. Paul spoke about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said this, he says, for we know that if this earthly tent, that's that's the way he referred to this body, this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, that is in the meantime, we groan in this body, longing to be clothed upon instead with our heavenly dwelling. The fact that our lives, our, our bodies are so fragile and our life is so brief prompts us to long for the coming of our Lord. And then finally, Isaiah tells us that our limited ability to control life cries out for his coming. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Sovereign Lord is a title for God that means God is in control. That's what sovereign means. A God who has a plan. A God who's who's, uh, uh, in control of what is going on. I'm not saying we don't have free will. We do have free will. But God is the one who ultimately is in control of the Uh, things that go on in life. And we're not. Let me ask you this. Don't raise your hand. I just want you to think about this. Have you lately experienced a situation over which you've come to the conclusion you have absolutely no control? I mean, it's in God's hands. You can go see every doctor, and you should. You can take every pill that they prescribe, and perhaps we should. We can do all the exercise we want, and we should. But ultimately, ultimately, you know that in your particular crisis, in your particular situation, when you've done everything you know to do, there is still a significant amount of that situation over which you have zero control. And I don't know about you, but over those, I'm kind of a control freak. I'm one of those people who I rarely like to sit in the passenger seat of the car while somebody else is driving. I'd rather drive. Now, uh, Amanda and Hillary and Zach will tell you that doesn't mean I'm a good driver. It just means I'm a control freak in the car. I like having some semblance of control. And so when, that, when they're, they're, I'm faced with the many things in my life over which I have zero control, it makes me really long for a God to intervene who does have control, who is in charge. The fact that I don't have control 
makes me long for the intervention of God. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Christian, German Christian, who was in prison because of his opposition to Hitler. He was in prison, and he wrote to a friend while he was in prison. He said this, quote, Life in a prison cell reminds me of a, a great deal of Advent. One waits and hopes and potters about, but in the end, what we do is of little consequence, for the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. We can do what we do within our prison cells, but ultimately we're locked in and we can only be released from the outside. We have no control over certain things. God, Isaiah said, is in control. God is merciful. God is aware. And God does care. Everything about Isaiah cried out for the Lord's intervention. Everything around us today cries out for the Lord's intervention, for His coming, and He is coming. The Bible ends with these words in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. These words are both both terrifying and joyful. Here's what he says. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right. Let the holy still be holy. For get this, I am coming soon. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes to take of the water of life as a gift freely come. The Lord's coming. And everything about us that is crisis-related longs for his intervention. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in this Advent season, we are appreciative of the promise and the assurance that you are coming again. Lord, we thank you that you intervene. And Lord, in in some real ways, we don't even have to wait until your second coming for your intervention because you intervene on a daily basis for us. You come to us through your spirit. You come to us through the touching hand of a good friend. You come to us in so many ways, in ways that we often do not even realize. You are the God who arrives Lord, during this invitation, I pray for your arrival. I pray for someone who is lost here today to come and invite you to be their Savior. And I pray that you would arrive in their hearts. I pray for someone who's a Christian and needs to make some decision, some renewed commitment in this service today. And I pray that you would come anew upon them. Lord, move in this invitation. Arrive again, O Lord. Let us join the chorus with Isaiah in saying, Oh, I can almost see him coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.